we come to the conclusion of the book of Philemon. And I have said this probably through every book that I have ever preached. It is kind of a bittersweet moment because we get to go on to another section. But I hate saying goodbye to the characters in the story. And uh, it's, uh, I would love to be able to know what actually happened to Philemon and Onesimus and Aphia and Archippus. And uh, of course we know what happened to the Apostle Paul, but we really don't know what happened to these other characters or the ones that we're going to look at today in uh, the end of Philemon. But let's go ahead and read these last few verses beginning at verse 20, Philemon and verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the Lord add his richest blessings to the reading of his word this morning. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you again this morning knowing that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no forgiveness, nor would we be able to extend it to others. With all the trouble and turmoil that is in the world, all of the wars and the conflicts, much of this is because people are not content with what they have, and when they seek to take that which belongs to other people or seek to do harm, we know that it is a violation of your commands, that we are to love firstly the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we know that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 127 makes that very clear, and yet we find once again turmoil for those of us who are older. We can remember many of the wars and the conflicts that have taken place in the Middle East, and this is so close to blowing up and could end up resulting in bringing other countries into the conflict. And we do not know what the future holds, but Lord, we can trust in you this morning that you are sovereign and that you do know. We know that because you are sovereign, we also recognize from the Old Testament as well as the principles found in the New that Sometimes you, use, you choose to use one country against another to be able for your honor and your glory to bring judgment or to see revival brought to a nation. Lord, whatever your will is, we ask that you would help us to under, seek to understand and not to question you, but as we find in the account of Job that in all of the things that Job suffered, he did not sin with his mouth, nor did he charge you foolishly. Lord, it would be so easy to charge you. It would be so easy to take our eyes off the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and seek to either reflect the world or be overly concerned about the things that are taking place, knowing full well that we can't change one thing. So, Lord, we do pray for the governments around the world. We are to pray for those who are in authority over us, and that includes our government here in America. There are so many decisions. Most of us would not be willing or would not even think remotely about being willing to make some of the hard decisions that our country must face. And yet, Lord, we know that we are to pray for wisdom for them. And as long as there is no conflict with Scripture, that we are to obey those who are in authority over us. So we pray whatever decisions militarily uh, Lord, around the world, as well as here, on a government level, federally, as well as on a state level, county level, city by city, town by town, may you be glorified. We long for the day when, as John prayed in Revelation chapter 22, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we pray for that today. 
We don't like seeing the turmoil, the conflict, the wars, the famine, the strife. Even the sin in our own lives, we don't like that, Father. We know there is a day coming when we'll be able to raise our eyes and see the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, Lord, that that would be our goal today. May you be glorified in the message. And may we go from here with a heart full of love for what you have done, especially in the area of forgiveness of sins. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We noted previously in our last message that forgiveness is not an option. It's a command. A command for all true believers who have been forgiven. To whom much has been given, much shall be required. And we have been forgiven a debt that could never be repaid by a person who did not have to pay the debt for us. We can be thankful for that. The fact that from eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that he would be the sacrifice and then came to this earth knowing full well he came for one purpose and that was to die. To die for the sins of mankind. In love and to atone for the wrath of God on our behalf, Jesus Christ did come. He did die. He did rise again the third day. And for all who come to him by grace through faith alone, he forgives from the heart. The art of forgiving is one that's not easy. It's a, it's a spiritual grace that all Christians must develop, but so rarely do we find it even between family members or between husbands and wives or between parents and children or, or grandchildren and grandparents or sadly even within the church itself. Because it is so difficult, one minister offered these suggestions. Number one, and I'd be happy to, I should have had a copy of these for you to be able to take away with you, but I hope that uh, if, if there is interest and you would like to have a copy of these afterwards, we can certainly get a copy for you. But listen to these as suggestions. If you're struggling with forgiveness, begin by assuring yourself that compared to Christ's sufferings, you have not been seriously wronged at all. Think about that. Compared to the sufferings of Christ on your behalf for your sin and for mine, you and I have not been seriously wronged at all. Number two, recall the many kind deeds that have been shown to you, perhaps even by the person or people who have harmed you. Well, sometimes that one can be hard, can't it? I can remember in my time as a funeral director, there were many funerals that I would like to not care to see repeated. And too often people would come together and of course the casket or the urn would be there at the front of the, uh, of the little chapel. And there were a lot of people, more times than not, who would stand up and they would say all kinds of nice things about the person who passed away. But there were some times it was just like World War III was getting ready to start. Because death also brings out not just the best in people sometimes, but it does bring out the worst. I can remember one funeral we had probably, I was the chaplain at the funeral at the, for this particular service and the two sisters came in and throughout the entire process they had been struggling and they had been, they actually sat down in front of me. We were preparing and getting all of the other details ready, not just my work as a chaplain, but as a funeral director. And the one sister sat on this side of the desk, the other one sat on this side of the desk, and this one would say, well, you can tell that woman over there that I want this. And then the one over here would say, well, you can tell that woman over there. They were two years apart and hadn't spoken to each other in 15 years. I think it's important that we remember the kindness that has been done by others or that we have been able to do to others and we can only do those things by the grace of God. Number three, list the benefits that you have received from the Lord. So this really is just a matter between you and God. Uh, what are the blessings? We sing that song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. 
Well, I know that growing up there are times we sing, count your many blessings, sing them ton by ton. I challenge you to take a piece of paper and begin writing all of the benefits that God has given you just today and see how that reflects in your heart and your mind on how you see others. Number four, thank God for blessing us with love and forgiveness each day. Can you imagine how it would be if you and I were to be responded to by God the way that we respond to others at times? How much love and forgiveness would you and I feel? So we should be thanking him. When we get up in the morning, the first thing that we should do, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, going back to number three, for the benefit of even being allowed to wake up today knowing that there are 1.2 million people this week alone that are going to go out into eternity, and I was not one of them. Number five. Here's a hard, here's a hard one. Make an honest effort to pray for the one who has injured you. You know, if we spent more time praying for individuals instead of just complaining, I believe that we would probably see revival in our own hearts, maybe in our communities, in our churches. We would see revival take place when we realize the effort that it takes to even pray for somebody who is, we consider, an enemy. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that we are to pray for our enemies, we are to pray for those who spitefully use us. Everybody goes through this in their life, whether it's between spouses, whether it's between children, and, 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 and there are some of you here this morning, maybe you've been estranged from, from somebody that you love, or somebody maybe at one time that loved you. And maybe you're estranged from your kids, or from your grandparents, or from your grandkids, or your, or your great-grandparents, or your great-great-grandkids. Or between you and your children. Or there's something that is, that is a struggle between you and them. And, and maybe you can't even put your finger on what even brought it about. I remember years ago being in Kansas. The first little church that I ever pastored. And for the sake of time, just to sum it up. The other church that was in town called a man to pastor their work. You guys know him, Rick Carter. And... Um, he came into town and the, uh, my church that had called me didn't know that the other church had called him and vice versa. Well, come to find out, he had actually pastored the church that I had been called to like almost 20 years prior. And after he had left, the church had actually split. This is in a town of about 1,700 people and nobody even had a clue anymore why they had even split. But, oh, they could point fingers very easily about, oh, they did this or they did that. Were you there? No, I wasn't there, but I just know what happened. And to make a long story short, six months later, our church and their church voted unanimously to merge. We packed our bags and we moved out of town. He was from there. He had a family ranch there in the town. His mother lived there. We figured that was probably the best option. After all, it wasn't my kingdom I was seeking to build. It was God's. But you know what had to be set aside were the hurts and the pains and the things that supposedly maybe nobody was even sure anymore what had taken place, but God was able to bring restoration. Anybody here when you were a kid ever played the game Chinese Whispers? You can call it whatever you want to, but... You know, if I start over here and I whisper something in his ear and then he whispers it and it goes all the way down, by the time it comes over here, it's like, wow, man, that wasn't even close to the story. <laughs> and, you know, sadly, sometimes that's what we find in our lives. Sometimes we find that in our churches or in our marriages. One person whispers this, one person, one person whispers that, and instead of truly forgiving from the heart, we want to live with that pain. We want to live with that hurt. Or sometimes we want to compound the problem by continuing the Chinese whispers. How about this one, number six? Go even further than praying for the individual by looking for an opportunity to help him or her. You say, wow, you're, you're asking a lot. Well, that's true, but that's what the Bible commands from us. 
This is what we find in Scripture. If your enemy hungers, the Bible says to feed him. If your enemy thirsts, give him something to drink. Number seven. If the offense is especially hard to forget, try to erase the memory by thinking gracious and generous thoughts. We have talked about this before, especially when we have dealt with like any kind of discipline or discipleship within the local church. There is no biblical command that says that you are to forgive and forget somebody's sin. None. Even, even God doesn't do that. You say, well, you're playing semantics. No, there's not semantics involved because here, I want you to hear me out. The Bible says that God forgives and chooses not to remember our offenses against us anymore. It's a choice on his part. And if we're thinking on God and if we are, if we are contemplating on him and we are contemplating his word and we are listening to the, the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through his word, I believe there are a lot of times that we're going to respond in ways that it's like, wow, did I just really do that? And you're going to find maybe that the love that you have for another brother and sister might just be rekindled or between a husband and a wife or between parents and children by learning to be gracious by learning to choose to remove the bad memories that are in place. Never ceases to amaze me how God works things together. If you'll notice this little, this little brochure or the little bulletin. Somebody else put this together. One of the first things that we did was we read the Lord's Prayer, or what is known as the model prayer. This individual makes this note, at night, as point number eight, repeat the phrase from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. I, I, I want to ask you a question this morning, and this is rhetorical, so I don't want anybody to raise their hand or respond out loud. What if God only forgave you the way that you forgive somebody else in your life? What if only God forgave you for the amount of sin that you forgive somebody else's sin? in your life, where would you and I be? You see, sometimes we get this misconception that God owes us and that we don't have to do the same because after all, we're just human. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're learning in the lesson with Gabe on Thursday nights from the book of Hebrews, we find that a greater came, a greater than the law, greater than Moses, greater than Melchizedek, greater than the Aaronic priesthood. And the person who came was the Lord Jesus Christ who was tempted and always like we are. And yet it was on the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ isn't asking you and I to do something that he didn't do himself. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne in, in heaven and for all of eternity past. The Godhead was enjoying perfect fellowship together and then one day for reasons known only to himself and for his honor and for his glory in the beginning God created. He didn't have to have the earth. He didn't have to have the angels. He didn't need somebody singing his praises. He had perfect fellowship without any of that. He had perfect fellowship without you and I. And in fact, we often make the comment as we look around and we see the struggles and the, and the strife and the conflicts that are around the world and, and we moan and gripe and complain and we want to cast some kind of disparity against, against God for all of those people that were killed. And well, if God was perfect and God was holy, why couldn't he have stopped all of these things? And why can't he just save everybody? And yet, you know what we should be asking is, God, why would you save anyone? 
we looked at the burden of forgiveness. And again, just by way of a, a, a recap, a brief recap before we go to the last two points. Failing to forgive others is a burden that will always be an uphill struggle. See this woman here carrying this rock, this great big boulder? If you and I are not willing to forgive, we're no different than this person who is trying to take this rock and drag it up to the top of Mount Everest. Do you think she'll ever make it? No. And you and I are going to find the exact same struggles in our lives because each step that we take is going to be an even greater struggle because you and I were not meant to be able to carry these kind of burdens or to drag them around with us from day to day, week to week. Alone, the battle will wear you out because, again, it is from the cross that our Master calls us to forgive as we were forgiven. We can't portray to the world that we have been forgiven if our heart is cold to the moving of the Holy Spirit to forgive others and we refuse. Let's, let's, let's make this very clear as we look at 1 John, for example. In the book of 1 John, and there are nine tests that we find in that little book, five chapters and the questions we have to ask ourselves is, how much do we love God? How much do you love God? Do you love God and his word more than you love sin? Do you believe that you don't sin? Do you love the brethren? You see, a person who is unwilling to forgive and there is no working of the Holy Spirit in, in your life or mine to be willing to forgive others the Bible is very clear that such a person is not a true believer. And this is a painful truth for us to realize and, and for us to learn because if we are forgiven, it means that we are to forgive others. And just as a child is going to grow after they are born, so too we as Christians are going to grow. There is no such thing as a Christian who has been supposedly saved or who has said a little prayer for 20, 30, 40 years who is going to be at the same place as they were when they first got saved. Now, does that mean that are there periods of time when we don't grow? Absolutely. There are periods of time maybe when you and I can get anemic. There are periods of time when, when you and I might revert to drinking from a spiritual bottle, as it were, and what we need to do is we simply go to 1 John 1, 9 and we, forget, we confess our sins and He is faithful, He is just, He forgives us of our sins and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we start right where we're at and we move forward again towards the cross. I'm sure every one of us have, have probably seen maybe little video clips on YouTube or sometimes even the news publishes these things and, and somebody is running in a race and maybe they get tripped and the person falls to the edge of the track and they fall over. And very rarely, but sometimes it does happen, the individual who tripped or fell over, what do they do? They get up. And they do what? Start running again. They start heading for the finish line. And, and, and if you go on YouTube by, the way, YouTube, by the way, not right now, but afterwards, if you go on YouTube, you'll find that there are a lot of actual videos of people who were at the very back of the pack. Nobody ever gave them a chance. Nobody ever thought that it was possible. And at the finish line, they're the winner. This life that we're in right now, this is a race. It's not a sprint. It's more than a marathon. From the time you and I come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we begin to run the race that is before us, we are to set our eyes on the prize. As, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, you therefore as a good soldier endure hardness. You know, too, too often it reminds me, and I think, Dad, you've mentioned this in one of your messages uh, that I heard not too long ago from you, and, and the account of the man who comes and he looks like he's going to beat the record, but after the race was run, I think it was in the London Marathon, after the race was run, people began to question and saying, wait a minute, I don't remember seeing him at mile marker 10 or 12 or 15 or 20, 
And so they began pulling up cameras that were along the route. And sure enough, he had actually come out of the crowd at about mile marker 24, thinking that he was going to win the race. And he hadn't even been running the whole time. What a tragedy it would be for us to be like those two who were in Pilgrim's Progress who come over the wall, climb over the wall, and think that they're going to make the run to the celestial city without coming by way of the cross. Again, we cannot portray to the world that we have been forgiven if our heart is cold to the moving of the Holy Spirit to forgive others, and we refuse. That's the question that you need to ask yourself this morning that I need to ask. Are you willing to forgive? We saw Paul was writing and he said that he was, that, Paul, that Philemon was to accept a brother as unto the Lord. And this was found in verse 17. Paul actually was asking Philemon not just to treat Onesimus as no longer a slave, but to treat Onesimus as family. What a comparison that we have when we take a look, for example, at the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son asked for his part of the inheritance? He's, he's been given everything. He goes away, goes off to a far country. He spends all of his money, riotous living, everything that he could possibly want. And finally, when he comes to himself, the word there is to be able to come to your mind, to be able to reason once again. And as he is, he is reasoning to himself, he says, how many of my father's house servants actually do better than I do? I'm eating and living in slop. And yet, I would rather go back to my father, humble myself before him and say, Father, don't treat me as a son, treat me as a servant, a slave. What happens with the prodigal son? Of course, he comes back. And as he's a very long ways off, the father's already looking for him across the hills. And he looks out and he sees his son and he hoists up his skirts and he begins running. The son can't even get the words out of his mouth. And the father says, nope, put a ring on him. Put shoes on his feet. Give him the best robe. Prepare the fatted calf. Kill it because tonight we're going to have a party. And this is what Paul has asked Philemon to do. He is reminding him of, the, of this gospel account, if you will. Forgiven. Treat him as family. You know, too often, even within churches, sometimes within marriages or between between parents and children, sometimes we get to a point that we are so wrapped up in bitterness and angst and, and all of the things that the world detracts from our minds that we fail to remember that if you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, regardless of where we worship, we will worship together around the throne of God if they are a true believer and we are. Paul continued and he said, putting aside offenses as to the Lord. In other words, Philemon, if you can forgive him, but you cannot let the offense go away with restitution, then let me pay for it. What a powerful testimony that must have been to Philemon. Forgiving as Christ forgave us on the cross, Christ bore our sin and atoned for the wrath of God the Father. And it is from the cross that we hear to tell us, I, it is finished. Put that on my account. And how, how do we justify, how can you and I justify the glorious message of the gospel that says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Part of the problem is that too many times we in churches, we don't want to be chief of sinners. We think that we're the chief of the righteous people, the chief of the good, moral, upstanding Americans. And then we found extending love to a wrong brother in verse 19. If we share the gospel, we are paying an undeserved debt forward. Somebody shared with us, somebody shared with you and I, and now we share with others. If you and I are not willing to share this good news with others, 
Shame on us. You see, because to allow people to continue to live in a house that is burning to the ground without warning them of the danger and of the fires that are there, we are saying God is good enough to save us, but he's not good enough to save them. And then we find the benefit of forgiveness in verse 20 and 21. Paul uses a word that is actually only used once in the entire New Testament. And the word here to let me have benefit in verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. The word actually means to be useful, to be profitable, to help, to receive profit or advantage or to have joy. And it comes from the same root word from which we get the name Onesimus, which means useful, helpful, or profitable. Paul is using a little bit of play on words here. And considering what Paul has already written in the previous 19 verses, again, a deliberate choice of word that once again is asking for the help of Onesimus. So what you could do, go back to verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some Onesimus from you in the Lord. In other words, Onesimus has proven to be profitable. He has proven to be helpful. He has proven to be useful. This one who at one time was useless. My friend, you and I, we cannot go from useless to useful unless the Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts. We find, firstly, a heart that is refreshed. The, the word here literally referred to cause another one to cease from any movement or labor in order that they might recover or collect their strength. Paul's not asking for anything more than a soldier might after a weary battle. Having addressed the son as a fellow soldier in verse 1 and 2, it's quite probable that, that Philemon or that Paul is appealing to Archippus here to aid and reach in the heart of Philemon, his dad. Paul is saying, just like a soldier, I'm weary. I struggle with the fight. I need somebody who is useful to me in ministry. I need somebody who is willing to be able to stand. I'm willing for somebody and I want somebody and I long for somebody. My heart yearns for somebody that would come alongside me like Moses and Aaron and her to be able to lift up their hands or to lift up Moses' hands. He says, I need strength. I need rest. I want a heart that is refreshed. Secondly, a life that is obedient to trust or to have confidence in a person is the word that is here. And Philemon, knowing that Philemon would obey Paul's request was certainly not in question. I don't believe for one moment. The two words here tell us that Paul trusted or had confidence that Philemon would obey the very requirements of biblical Christianity. We go from the Old Testament to those who could not followed the law to those who broke the law in every way and the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he stresses that it is not the externals it is what is on the inside you see because it is what is in your heart and mind that begins to come out out of the things that are in the heart those are the things that proceed from the mouth if you're not willing to extend forgiveness if all you have is hatred or bitterness or wrath, or whatever it is that is going on in your heart, instead of biblical Christianity, then it is time for a reflection of your heart to see whether you truly belong to God or not. Again, what are the requirements of biblical Christianity? The Lord Jesus Christ. We have stated it already in the message. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the reason why we can't get to number two is because more times than not, we're not obeying number one. Because if we were obeying number one, if we were saying, Lord, I will love you with every part of my being, even to the parts that I don't want to give up, even to the parts that mean more to me and they shouldn't, but yet I just can't let them go. 
You see, when we truly love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, and mind, we love God the Father. We love the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, for what He does in our lives. Even when He corrects us, even when He disciplines us, even when we are being chastised and we look at His words and we realize that His commandments are no longer grievous. You know, it's one thing to be driving down the road for us to look at a stop sign and we always wonder and say, man, sure wish the speed limit was a little faster here. Anybody here had the privilege of being able to go down to Texas and drive the route down to San Antonio that's now 85 miles an hour? Anybody? Okay. Of course, that's not the speed they're actually doing. That's just the posted speed limit, Okay. And then as you grow up and you finally get to drive and you realize, man, there are a lot of rules. And you realize it's not just about keeping in the speed limit, it's about keeping in your lane, it's about watching out for other people, it's about knowing how to use the brake and the gas pedal. It's about having respect towards others. Biblical Christianity is not any different, folks. The rules that God gives us are very simple. Do you know why we've got 66 books? Because the entire Bible had God chosen to do it. He could have said, in the beginning God created, I am God, therefore obey me. And that would have been all the Bible we needed. But you know what the problem was? 39 books it took for us to realize what a bunch of morons those Jews were. And then we get to the New Testament and we find the disciples, instead of following the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly, we find even at the foot of the cross, they're all gone. And then we think somehow that in the 21st century, this enlightened century in which we live, somehow we think that we're not just like them. A life that is an example. Here we find... Philemon setting the example. This last part tells us that Paul knows the master will do whatever it takes to do what is right and to do well while acting rightly. This isn't just about doing what is right in position, but also in your disposition. Finally, the bond of forgiveness, which is found in verses 22 through 25. Paul's work by the power of the Holy Spirit is now over. He's relayed the value, the power, and the command of obedience. He had encouraged Onesimus to go back, and and now he has to face the consequences of his actions. But the beauty of what follows is lost in the mist of time. And all we have is tradition to tell us what happened. Some believe that Onesimus actually succeeded Timothy as the pastor in the city of Ephesus. Tradition states that he was martyred after being imprisoned in Rome again for the second time somewhere between A.D. 81 and A.D. 96. Whether this is true or not, there's a little sad epilogue here that I think we need to understand. You see, if indeed he became the pastor of Ephesus, it is shortly after his death that we read Revelation chapter 2. And we find that God already had something against this church. The church at this point is not 70 years old. And God has something against the church because they lost their first love. What a tragedy. If nothing else, this should be a lesson to us that we not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season, we will reap if we faint not. It also reminds us that if we do not keep Christ first in what he did for you and I on the cross, we will quickly become complacent and before long, we will no longer show the love that we had at the first. I've said this before in regards to marriage. Marriage isn't falling in love with a person one time for the rest of your life. It's falling in love with them over and over and over and over and over again, even when you don't feel like it. 
in this bond of forgiveness, just the last couple of minutes, we see firstly the gift of hospitality. The word to prepare means to get a feast and a lodging ready. Paul had no doubts whatsoever that he'd be released and arrive at Philemon's with the intention of celebrating a prodigal son that had been returned. From the start of the church, believers have been known for their hospitality to strangers. It was an important grace to practice for those in need who couldn't help themselves. Throughout all of church history, the world has never been kind to those who claim the name of Christ. But it is through persecution and trials, not opinions, not once, but through persecution and trials that the church has always banded together in Christ. If you and I have more of a desire to destroy, to hurt, to harm one another, instead of being built up together, we evidence that we do not belong to Christ in the first place. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Secondly, the gift of prayer. Paul wraps up his letter and he uses an interesting word to show his new relation with Philemon, at least in Paul's mind it would have been. You see, the word here means to graciously restore one to another who desires his safety as though he is a captive. In other words, let's put this in modern English. Through your prayers... Philemon, I will be graciously restored to you as your slave. Have you noticed the massive shift that took place? Paul sends a slave back as a brother to be part of the family. And now Paul steps up and he says, Ones or Philemon, because I took that on my account, I am now your slave. You treat me any way you want to under the confines of the law. Philemon must have been absolutely blown over that Paul would have done something like that for a house slave. Not really surprising when you look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 or chapter 10 where he says, I would that I could be a curse to hell for the sake of my brethren that they might come to Christ. If Paul had that much love for his fellow Jews, how much more his love for the church of Jesus Christ? The gift of comfort, thirdly, Listen to 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen, if, if, if we can't get along here, if we're struggling during the good times, what happens when persecution comes? What happens if we find ourselves, I find myself like Pastor James Coates one day in Canada who ended up getting put in prison, taken away from his family because he stood for the truth. How many people will stand with me? How many people stood with him? Second Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. My friends, this is not Mark's words. This is Scripture. Oh, and even beyond that, Philippians 2.1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul knew what he was talking about. He struggled. He saw the struggles. He saw the pain. He endured it. This is evident in the people that he chooses and that he calls, number one, my fellow prisoner. 
Epaphras. This was a man who was a Gentile from Colossae, and Paul says, he is one of you. Paul, according to Paul, Epaphras had shared the gospel to the church or to the people in Colossae, and there was a new church in place. Paul speaks of the day that they heard the gospel, and he reminded them that they had heard it from Epaphras. This man had traveled to Rome to visit Paul, informing Paul about the Colossians' love in the Spirit in Colossians 1.8. Listen to this about Epaphras. Epaphras was the kind of man, he was on the outside. He was not one of them originally because he was a Gentile. He was a nobody. And yet the only thing that Paul was concerned about with him was not his culture, not his heritage, not his language, but the fact that he shared the gospel. What about his fellow workers, John Mark? 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, I think this sums up everything we need to know about John Mark this morning. Luke alone is with me, Paul says, as he is sitting in prison for the, one of the final times. Get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What a big difference to go from being the loser that he was to now being profitable for ministry. It's the same root word, useful. John Mark had become a true biblical Onesimus. Aristarchus, although only mentioned a few times, we know he was a faithful follower of Christ and he served beside Paul. And the few places that are mentioned show a believer who does not need to be high profile to accomplish great things. You and I may not be very visible to others, but we are seen and valued by the Lord. But then you've got Demas. Poor Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas in love with this present world from the time that Philemon has been written and has been sent off, Paul is still in prison and he writes 2 Timothy and from the time that Onesimus has left and he has already commended Demas, now Demas has turned and he says, in love with this present world has deserted me. The Greek verb here implies that Demas had not just left Paul, but had left him in the lurch. He had abandoned Paul. He had abandoned the church. He had abandoned Jesus Christ in the time of need. You see, the apostle is in prison. He faces the death sentence, and Demas chooses to set sail because he can't handle it. It's too tough. He wants to pick up his toys and go home because he doesn't get his way. Paul was deeply let down by Demas. It's never easy to see a friend or an associate or a brother or a sister, church member in whom you've placed your trust forsake you in the midst of hardship. We know it happens because we're human. And finally, we have Luke the physician. More than likely, like a lot of slaves in Roman Empire, or like a lot of physicians, I should say, Luke was actually a physician. Physicians were not held in high esteem in Rome. So it's quite probable that Luke was also actually a slave, which would be very interesting to be included in this group of workers. But it would be a reminder that God can use those who were once considered useless to now be useful. And finally, our benediction. The gift of blessing. Grace be with your spirit. I love this phrase, grace. I often sign my letters within Christian love and grace. To our knowledge, it's Paul's very last word in this life to either Onesimus or to Philemon until they meet again on the streets of glory. But what a way for him to finish. You see, the word means of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. All that together, and Paul sums up by saying, grace to you.
your family. The account of Philemon has walked us through the highs and lows of slavery in Roman times. Onesimus went from being a slave to a brother to part of a forever family. Philemon went from being a master to a clear understanding that he was a slave to Christ. Paul took on a debt he didn't owe so that the slave would be forgiven, but also as a reminder to Philemon of the immense debt that was taken on by Christ on our behalf. Paul wrote in a way that reveals the true incredible wonder as he shows the church how Christ took upon himself our sin while granting us that we are to be clothed in his righteousness. It's the great exchange. It could only happen because God himself chose to extend divine forgiveness to you and I in a way that humanly is impossible. If God could see you and forgive you on the very worst day of your life and the worst sin that you have been involved with, even if it was just in your thoughts, and God could forgive that, how much more should we be willing to forgive others? It is in this way that we are called to love one another and even again to love our enemies. There's no greater enemy than what you and I were when we were separated from the holiness of God. Therefore, I pray that the Lord will help us to be able to extend the same kind of forgiveness to others. Forgiveness from the heart. Let's stand together.